It's good to be with you this morning at the Woodway campus. If you don't know me, my name is Reagan Reynolds. I've been on staff at the church for about eight and a half years. I abandoned you guys for the Cypress campus about a year and a half ago. But I grew up here at the Woodway campus. I'm a product of Second Baptist School. In fact, the very first weekend that 11-11 ever happened, I was there as a middle school student. So I grew up at this service. I'm so happy to be with you now. I actually met my wife at the visitor reception at the 11-11 service. I wasn't looking for it, okay? But Babs Vena said, talk to this girl. And I was like, I'm not gonna argue with you. So that's where my wife and I met. It's actually funny, the week after I met my wife, Ben was giving an illustration during this service and he called two people up on stage, one of them being my wife. She was wearing this beautiful white outfit and he had her stand on this side of the stage and said, this is Mother Teresa. And then he called up another guy and put him on the other side of the stage and said, this is Hitler. And he was giving an illustration about our righteousness before God. And I was standing there thinking, oh my goodness, this poor girl, she's brand new to the church. She's probably mortified standing in front of everyone. Little did I know, she absolutely loved it. She loved being in front of everyone. It endeared her to the church. And now she's never gonna leave. Unfortunately, we haven't heard about what happened to the guy that Ben said was Hitler. <laughs> anyway, it's very special for me to be with you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for you that you speak through your word. We ask that you would speak to us clearly and that you would help us listen. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If we want to look for wisdom this year, if we wanna find uncommon insights that maybe we couldn't find in other places, a good place to start would be for us to go to the great works of art and literature. There's something about true artistry that can help us see things maybe the way we didn't see them before. I'm talking about the great works, things like Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, or Homer's The Odyssey or The Iliad or The Music of Bach. There's something about this kind of art that can help us see beauty and truth that maybe we hadn't seen before. But did you know that film and movies can also reach this level of artistry. A really good movie can say true things about the world that may not be obvious at first glance. And no, I'm not talking about the things that we are normally considered great movies, things like Citizen Kane or Casablanca or even The Godfather. No, there is a perfect movie. And that movie is 1995's A Goofy Movie. <laughs> There's a few of you who know what I know. And it's that this movie is so good that it almost physically hurts me to talk to you about it. The music in this movie is incredible. The entire thing is hilarious. This is, without a doubt, the supreme father-son road trip movie. And if you disagree with me about that, then you can fight me, okay? Well, let's be real, I don't know how to fight. You can fight Terry Kurtz, he knows how to fight. I can't spend my entire morning talking to you about a Goofy movie, but I should tell you about one scene in this movie. At the beginning, we find out that Max, who is the son of Goofy, he's the main character, he is completing a school year, and he is looking for an opportunity to impress the girl that he likes. Her name is Roxanne. So a musical number starts. It's a cartoon, after all. And in this musical number, Max and the rest of his compatriots at school start singing a song about how after today, things are going to be better than they are today. Max says, after today, I want to be able to talk to Roxanne and not feel like an idiot. That is very relatable to me. His classmates say that after today, we won't have to eat cafeteria food anymore. We don't have to do homework. We can do what we want, go to the mall, live at the pool, read comic books. Even the school bus driver says that after today, I don't have to work anymore. I can sit on my rear and do what I want. That also is quite relatable. Everyone in the song is anticipating the next day being better than the day that they're in. In one line of the song, Max is talking about Roxanne, and he says this. This is powerful stuff. He says, she looked right through me. 
And who could blame her? I need a new me, plus some positive proof that I'm not just a goof. Oh, that is so good. Shakespeare himself could not have written it any better. This song perfectly encapsulates the anticipation, the hope, the desire that things can be better after today. We're at a time of year right now where many of us are feeling the same sense of hope and anticipation that the characters in that movie are feeling. We hope that our life this next year can be better than the previous years were. Where does that come from, that almost universal desire? I wanna lose 10 pounds, I wanna get a promotion at work, I wanna fix my relationship, I wanna be in a relationship in the first place. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Where does that come from? I think maybe it comes from the fact that all of us know intuitively that there are things about us that are not as they should be. We need something new. I feel pretty confident that I can say this about each one of you in this room with me this morning. You, as you are right now, you are not as you should be. You need change, you need something new. There are areas of your mind and of your heart that need to be transformed. We all need something new. I put together a quick little list. I'm calling it a new year checklist of some areas in your life where maybe you might need something new in this next year. The first one is this, my words. The words that you speak with people. If you looked at your last year, are your words uplifting to God and to others? Or do you need something new? Your relationships, are your relationships healthy and life-giving? Or if they're not healthy, do you need to get out of that relationship? Or maybe you're the reason it's bad in the first place. Are your relationships healthy? Do you need something new? This next one, my body. This could be something simple, like the things that you put in your body and the way you exercise or don't exercise. That's pretty convicting. But we're also just talking about the inputs that you allow to come in your life. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. My private thoughts. What do you think? What is your internal monologue like when no one else is around? The things that you dwell on. Do you need something new in your private thoughts? My time. How are you spending your time right now? This morning, I got a dreaded notification on my phone that I get every Sunday, and some of you might know what I'm talking about. It's the update of my screen time from Apple each week, and it is a punch in the gut each time I look at it. It is a reminder that I am terrible at managing my time. I wonder if you're in the same place. And last one, my money. Whew, if you wanna make people feel uncomfortable, let's start talking about personal finances. Are you using the resources that God has given you right now in a way that honors him? I don't make this list to make you feel bad about the way that this last year went for you. The main thing I'm trying to stress is that there are definitely areas of your life where you need something new. And the good news is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you are brand new to faith or if you are miles or continents away from God or if you've been a believer for decades. If you are ready and willing to lean into the truth of God's word and obedience, things can be different and new for you after today. Our text comes from John chapter eight this morning. We're gonna be reading a brief story from Jesus's life, a very powerful story. And it's very clear after reading it that Jesus offers something entirely novel and new from the world. Let's read. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, he began to go out, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Powerful story from Jesus in his life. We see in the story there's three parties at play. There is Jesus sitting in the temple teaching. People are listening to him. There are the Pharisees and scribes. For the rest of our time, I'm just gonna call them the Pharisees because that's the primary group that's talking to Jesus. They're accusing him. And then there's the woman who is caught in the middle of the whole thing. It's very clear from the beginning, and the text says it explicitly, that the Pharisees planned this event as a trap for Jesus. They were already suspicious of him. They uh, did not like what he was teaching. They were looking to discredit him. They might have even been looking to do a little bit of light murder toward him. They were not very happy with Jesus at this moment. And the way they attempted to trap him here was by putting him in a lose-lose situation. So they catch this woman in the middle of the act of adultery. They drag her out publicly, and they ask Jesus, the law says we should kill her, what do you say we should do? This would be very common in the ancient world, in first century Israel. If there was a hairy ethical uh, or moral issue, they would bring it to a respected rabbi and ask them what they should do. But they called Jesus teacher here. It was really a ruse. They were trying to get after him. The reason that this was a pickle for Jesus, or it could have been, is that if he were to agree that this woman should be killed, if he said, yeah, let's do what the law says and stone her, it would have undermined everything that he had been teaching in his ministry before. It would have undermined the things that he taught about forgiveness and mercy. It also would have undermined his ministry as a friend to sinners. So they thought if he said, let's stone her, it will end his ministry, it'll end his influence. On the other hand, if Jesus were to say, well, you know, let's not kill her, maybe it's a little harsh to, mur you know, to murder someone because they got caught in the act of adultery, then they could have accused him at that point of being a lawbreaker. That would be the worst insult that the Pharisees could have given to him, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. So anyway, Jesus does not answer the way that they expect. I think it's interesting in the text, it says, it notes this little detail that you usually wouldn't pick up in this kind of story, but that he stooped down and started doodling on the ground. He started writing something. I, along with pretty much every other person who's ever read this text, wonders, what was Jesus writing on the ground? It didn't tell us. I always assumed when I was young that he was, you know, painting like a Bob Ross painting or like some sort of anime character or something, you know, just because he knew things that no one else knew. But we don't know. We have some guesses. We do know that immediately after he doodles, he tells the Pharisees, if you have no sin, you can throw the first stone, and they all walk away. Now, if he had just said, if you have not broken the law, then you can stone her, the Pharisees would have stoned her. Jesus must, in my mind, have done something when doodling on the ground to make them think, man, I can't throw a stone at this woman. There are a couple passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that give the instructions about if people are caught in adultery that they should be, uh, that they should be executed. I have them written up here. In those passages, though, I want you to notice, it doesn't say that a woman caught in adultery is supposed to be executed. It says that the man and the woman should be purged from the evil among you. The purpose of this part of the law was that God was trying to protect and preserve his people from immorality and idol worship. But the man and the woman were supposed to be the ones who would be stoned. There were other passages, though, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that warn against being a malicious witness, meaning, meaning a person maliciously trying to get another person in trouble and punished. It said, if you are a malicious witness, you could be liable for the same punishment that the person that you were trying to get in trouble in the first place. One of the things we see in the passage that is that if the Pharisees were able to bring this woman to Jesus, it means that they probably set this woman up. 
The burden of proof in the Jewish legal system was that two adult men had to witness the same act happening at the same time, and they, it, it couldn't have been a situation where they weren't trying to stop it. It looks pretty clear they had set this woman up, also from the fact that the man isn't there. It's only the woman who's brought there before him. Jesus might have been writing some of those verses about being a malicious witness. Another thing Jesus could have been doodling in the ground is maybe a list of some of the sins of the Pharisees. Jesus knew the things that the people had done. There could have been men among the Pharisees who had also committed adultery, but just no one else knew about it. Another thing we know about Jesus is that he knew the internal thoughts of people. He could have been doodling the desire that he knew that the Pharisees have to do the same things that this woman had done. Either way, it's very clear that once Jesus says, if you have no sin, you can throw the first stone, the people walk away. Finally, it's just Jesus and the woman left, and he asks her, did anyone condemn you? She says no, and he says, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. There are a thousand different things we could talk about from just this passage alone, but I wanna focus on just a couple. What are the new things that Jesus reveals to us in this little story? The way that he acts, the way that he speaks, what new things can we learn for this next year? The first one is this. Jesus offers new perspective. New perspective. Perspective or frame of reference is extremely important because the angle at which you look at something can determine what you think about it, whether I'm looking at the front or the back of my hand or whatever you're looking at. Every person in this room has a unique perspective on the world. You actually also have a unique physical perspective of where you're looking at me from. Your perspective might be similar to the people that are around you. It might be very different. But your perspective is made up of the things that you've experienced in your life, the things that you believe, the things that your family uh, raised into you, the things that the culture influences you to believe. That forms your perspective. Here is the scary part for you and me, though. Your perspective is at best limited. You can't see the whole picture of what's going on in front of you. At worst, your perspective can actually be distortive. It can be deceptive. It can keep you from seeing things as they truly are. I have a really clear example of this that I know all of you have experienced at some point in your life. Surely, you have met a person in your life at some point who fell madly in love with somebody. And when they fell in love with them, they were thinking, oh man, this guy is so perfect. He checks all my boxes. Well, all the while not seeing what everyone else can see, that this guy is a total jerk. He doesn't want to work. He's lazy. Nobody likes him. He's a huge fan of Nickelback. He's terrible. And the whole thing is going to be a disaster. But the person can't see it because their perspective is so skewed. They are so blinded that they can't see what's going on in front of them. I want you to take a look at this rhino. I have a, have a picture prepared for you. I want you to suspend your disbelief for a moment because rhinos don't have fingers or thumbs or hold paintbrushes. But in this picture, this rhino likes to paint. He wants to paint things. He wants to show beautiful landscapes. But if you can see, every picture is covered up by about 60% horn. And the reason for that is that that's what's in front of him. It's the only thing he could see. I wonder, do you and I have things in your perspective that keep you from seeing the world as God has truly put it in front of you? I wanna talk for a moment about the perspective of the Pharisees. In this text, why did they act the way that they did? Why were they accusing Jesus in this way and using this woman to try and do it? I'll try and be as simple as possible in explaining it, but the Pharisees were a populist group in Israel and their only goal was that they wanted the nation of Israel to follow the law of Moses. The Pharisees were not necessarily the most wealthy or influential people in Israel. That would have been like the Sadducees or the chief priests. These were just regular people who cared about the law of Moses. The Pharisees looked back at Israel's history and they came to the conclusion that every bad thing that had ever happened to their people happened because they ignored God's laws. 
that actually sounds pretty right to me. Don't you think? I mean, that sounds like a pretty good synopsis of the Old Testament. The Israelites would ignore God's laws. They would worship other gods. Bad things would happen to them. They had seen this happen over and over again. And by the time that Jesus and the Pharisees were interacting with each other, Israel was not even an independent nation anymore. The Pharisees looked even farther back in their history, and they looked back to Abraham, who was the father of the Israelites. And the entire nation of Israel was founded on the promises that God made to Abraham. I have them listed here on this slide. God made a few promises to Abraham. One of them is that he would have many descendants, which he did. They had populated and gone all over. The next thing he promised is that they would inherit a specific plot of land, meaning the land of Canaan. But when Jesus was alive, the Israelites, a lot of them lived in that land, but it didn't belong to them. It belonged to the Romans. He promised that his descendants would be a great nation. The Israelites were not a great nation. The Pharisees were saying, why is this the case? And then lastly, God's promise is that Abraham's descendants would bless the entire world, that he would save the world through Abraham's descendants. The Pharisees were looking at that and saying, why hasn't that happened? They asked, what can we do to see God's promises fulfilled? And the conclusion that they came to is that they needed all of Israel to follow the law to a T. They wanted to do everything, follow the ritualistic cleansing laws, the food laws, the calendar. If we do it all perfectly, then maybe God will have favor on us. He'll, maybe he'll send a Messiah and free us from the Romans and make us a great nation. That was where the perspective and the hope of the Pharisees were. So you could see why the Pharisees viewed Jesus as a threat to their perspective and their goals. Jesus, they viewed him as a lawbreaker. A few chapters before, he had healed a man on the Sabbath. They thought he had broken the law. They saw him associating with sinners and Gentiles, and they thought, this guy's getting too popular. He's a threat to our goals. I want you to think about that for a second. The Pharisees' goal was to see God's promises fulfilled. But Jesus was standing right in front of them, literally the fulfillment of all of God's promises to them, and they hated him. Jesus, the word who was with God in the beginning, he was there at the creation of the world. He holds everything together, and they were trying to trick him because their perspective, their political ideology, the things they cared about were so narrow that they couldn't see God incarnate when he was standing right in front of them. I wonder if you and I have any sort of political opinions or cultural preferences that we hold so dearly that they are distorting our perspective on what God wants us to see. There are two main areas from that initial checklist, the New Year checklist, that I think will help us maybe repair our perspective in this year. One of them is your body, and the other one is your private thoughts. Your body and your private thoughts. We briefly touched on the fact that maybe this year God's calling you to take better care of the vessel that he's given you. Uh, the way that you physically feel will definitely affect the way that you see the world. But where I wanna focus more right now is on the things that you are allowing into your mind through your body. What I'm talking about here are the things that you are allowing to go in your eyes and in your ears. What are you watching? What are you listening to? Are those things pulling you closer to where God has called you, or are they pulling you away from him? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that if your eye causes you to sin, you should cut it out. And he didn't mean that euphemistically, like, cut that out. He means, like, cut your eye out. He said if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I am not suggesting that you cut off a body part, okay? Your lawyer cannot call me afterwards saying that I told you to do that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am suggesting is that maybe if what you are watching and what you are listening to is distorting your perception of what is real and what is true, maybe you need to do some surgery on your life of what you're watching 
and what you're listening to. The things that you watch and you listen to, those will also form your internal thought life. And your internal thought life is the thing that gives you your perspective on the world. What does your internal monologue sound like? Are you meditating and chewing on things that are uplifting, that are drawing you closer to God? What are you chewing on? Maybe your internal monologue needs to change into a dialogue with God himself. We need new perspective, new perspective. The next thing that Jesus reveals in this text are new priorities. The priorities of the Pharisees were very clear. They cared about Israel following the law and they were going to destroy anything or anyone who got in the way. What's interesting about this is that Jesus knew the law better than the Pharisees. Jesus said in the Gospels that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law was written about Jesus. It was pointing forward to him. The entire purpose of it was to keep God's people together, to keep them separate, so that God could send his son to save not just Israel, but the entire world. The difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is that he did not have the same priority as them. Their priority was the kingdom of Israel. His priority was the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God does not concern itself with the borders of a nation or ethnic identity or religious uh, fundamentalism, anything like that. It cares about one person at a time having their life conform to God's will. And because of that, Jesus always prioritized people. He prioritized people over the letter of the law. This story is a good example of that. The letter of the law would have said this woman should be executed. The letter of the law also might have said that he maybe should not have healed that guy on the Sabbath. Jesus always prioritized people. He knew exactly what God had called him to do, and he did it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, because their view had become so narrow, their priorities were disordered, they found themselves in opposition to God himself. Are your priorities right now ordered or disordered? I found two stories that I am delighted to share with you because they're hilarious beyond reason. They both happened in New York, and uh, I want to talk to them. Two of guys were involved in this. One guy's name is Edwin, and the next one's name is Marcin. The first guy in New York, Edwin, was on a train, and he was commuting from one area to the other, and the horrible thing happened. He needed to use the restroom while he was on the train. Horrible situation. I don't recommend it. He goes into the bathroom, and the true nightmare scenario unfolded when he dropped his phone into the train toilet. So his phone's in there, and you know, this is all, we, we wake up with a cold sweat thinking about these sort of things. He's thinking, I love my phone, toilets are disgusting, what am I supposed to do in this moment? And in a moment of cold, rational logic, Edwin decided the only thing that he could do was to shove his arm so far in that toilet that he got stuck and they had to remove him with the jaws of life. This is a true story. Four months later, also in New York, Marcin, another guy, was walking across a bridge to go to work, and while he was walking, a person came and held him up at gunpoint. So the guy holds up a gun to him and says, give me your phone. Marcin, being a wise and studious man that he was, says, I don't believe that you're going to shoot me. I'm not going to give you my phone. He chose wrongly. He was shot in the leg shortly after. He fell to the ground, still clutching his phone, unwilling to give it to his assailant. These two guys showed a distinct lack of priorities. Here's the kicker of these stories. This is, I love this so much. These happened in the fall of 2003 and the spring of 2004. This is the phone that the guy was willing to get shot over. <laughs> Nokia 3390. That phone, the only thing you could do on that is send a text for 10 cents per text. Maybe make a phone call, 
And if you're lucky, maybe you can play Snake on that phone. You can't even down, download Angry Birds on that phone. And that guy was willing to die over it. It seems like a really silly story. It is a silly story. But I can't help but think that in our lives, our priorities might be just as skewed over stupid things like a terrible cell phone as his is. The most obvious and easiest example for me to give right here is the way that we use our cell phones. Our cell phones are a little bit better than that one. I give you that. We can do a little more things on our phone. But like I mentioned earlier with my reminder I get each Sunday about the number, you know, the number, amount of time during the week that I spend on my phone, it shows that my priorities are askew. My wife and I call this when we're at our house. We'll notice the other one doing it and we'll say, stop burying your face in your phone. I wonder how many of you are spending a lot of time burying your face in your phone. The two things from the New Year checklist that I want to circle back to at this point <clears throat> would be the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your money. The reason for that is your time and your money are both limited resources, and the way that you use them shows me where your priorities are. We might say that our priorities are in a certain place. We might say that our priorities are to know God and to love our family, and then everything else comes after that. But if I were to look at the log of time that you spend on your cell phone and the times that you're on it, would it show that your priority is to spend time with your family, or would it show something else? If I were to look at your bank statement, which I'm happy to do if you want me to look at it for you, what would that tell me about where your priorities are right now? Do you need something new with the way that you've spent your time and the way that you've spent your money? We need new priorities. The last thing that Jesus shows us is new purpose. I've spoken a lot about Jesus and the Pharisees in this passage. We should take a moment to talk about the woman. We don't know much about her situation. We don't know what led her to that. We know that she sinned. She did something that was destructive to her and those around her. She was wronged by the Pharisees. But when Jesus speaks to her, he doesn't give her a free pass. He obviously defends her. He keeps her from being punished in the way that she was going to. But he says to her, go and sin no more. If Jesus finds us in a place where there is sin in our life, his first reaction to you is compassion, mercy, pity. But his desire is not to leave you where you are and give you a pass. If you find yourself aimlessly wandering, not knowing what you're, where you're going, what you're doing, why you're doing it, Jesus calls us to a higher, different purpose. We need new perspective, new priorities, and new purpose. My intention this morning is not to just give you a list of things that you need to do better in this next year, because that wouldn't be very helpful. You'd probably forget it after about a week, or I would. But my desire is to give you one thing that you can walk away with that will help you change all of these parts in your life, that will bring something new to you. The way I want to tell you about that is by tell you, telling you about a person who affected my life tremendously. Uh, his name is Dr. Jim Deloach. He was a pastor at our church for decades. He came here to second when Dr. Young came. That's me and my wife and, and Dr. D at our wedding. I'm going to call him Dr. D for the rest of the story. So Dr. D is this wonderful guy. I didn't cross paths with him much, much when I was a child. I started to spend time with him when I was an adult and I had started ministry. Another pastor and I would go to his house once a week and he would teach us and we would listen to him and spend time with him. Later on, he became so important to me that when my wife and I were dating, we said that we wanted her to meet him. So we did, and it was a wonderful meeting. And we arranged another meeting a couple months away that we were gonna drive out to Magnolia to his house. He lived very far away. And so when the day came that we were gonna go see Dr. D again, my wife and I got into some enormous argument and we were so angry at each other. I do not remember for the life of me what it was about, neither does she, but it was a really difficult argument. We were uh, engaged at the time. 
And she said to me, I'm so mad at you. I cannot go see Dr. D right now. It's not fair for us to have to go. I'm just so angry. And I told her, you know, Dr. D, we told him we were gonna go there. He's getting older. He was getting older. We, we need to go. So we drove there and that car ride was a little icy. And I don't mean cold as it is today. We obviously live in Houston. It was an icy car ride. But when we got there, within about five minutes of talking to Dr. D, he was talking about his wife who had recently passed away and what a blessing marriage was and all these things about our life that was ahead of us. Within five minutes, I look over. My wife is crying. She comes to hug me. She's forgotten that she's mad at me. And I was thinking to myself, did I just find the greatest cheat code in the history of relationships? <laughs> Whenever she's mad at me, I bring her out to Dr. D's house and he fixes it all. The reason I bring up Dr. D, though, is that in the first few times that I spent time with him, it was obvious that there was something different about him. He was unlike any person that I've ever met before, and I didn't know what it was. The only way I can kind of explain it is to say he almost had like an aura coming off of him. I am not a mystical person. If you know me, I'm pretty cold, rational, logical. Dr. D was different. There was something strange about him, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was until I spent more time with him. And the more time I spent with him, the more clear it became. The thing that was different about him is that Dr. D, over not days or weeks or months, but over decades, was slowly, faithfully, consistently walking with the Lord, listening to him, obeying him, knowing what he desired. By the time that I'd met Dr. D, it reminds me of the parable Jesus tells about the kingdom of God being like the smallest seed in the garden that grows into a huge tree that brings shade for all sorts of animals. Dr. D had blossomed into a person who had a perspective like God's. He saw the world the way that God did, obviously not perfectly, he was human, but he could see things the way that God saw them. His priorities were so obviously in line with where God wanted them. His priorities were to know God and to walk with him, to love his wife and his family, to serve the church, that was it. It was so clear where his priorities were. His purpose was also clear. He was dead in the middle of God's will for his life. There wasn't any doubt about it. And the, way, the place that that came from was not him trying to incrementally fix little parts of his life. It came from him making the one decision to encounter and to walk with Jesus over and over and over and over again. The thing that I wanna leave you with today is this. If you know that you need something new in your life right now, the only thing that you need to do to experience different perspective, different priorities, different purpose, is to say yes to walking with the Lord, to know him, to spend time in his word, to pray, to when you hear his voice, say yes every time. That is what will change you and give you an entirely new perspective, priority, and passion for the thing that God is calling you to do in the world.